I'd like to begin by thanking our God for this, uh, this beautiful occasion. Special time for brothers and sisters to be together and share in our common faith to the Lord and our devotion to Him. And I want to thank you for the opportunity to teach for you today and hope that what we have to study will be something that will be helpful to you, will be practical, something that will be useful, something that will affect your lives so that you will be a different person walking from this building as you were whenever you came in. This morning for a little while I want to study concerning the subject of commanding fire from heaven. You might look at this and think, oh, this is going to be one of those old-fashioned hellfire and brimstone lessons. Uh, when in fact we're kind of going to go the opposite direction. <clears throat> but we, we take our text from Luke chapter 9 verses 51 to 56. An occasion where Jesus was with his disciples that happened in the land of Samaria that I want us to look at this morning and, and look at the teachings that we can draw from it that I think are very pertinent to us today in the culture and in the time that we're living in. The Bible says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face and as they went they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Now Jesus and his disciples that are with him were at Bethsaida and they were going to make the journey down to Jerusalem. And to make the journey down to Jerusalem they were going to pass through the land of Samaria. And we all know the history between the Samaritans and the Jews that there was no love lost there but rather that there was enmity between those two groups of people that had been going on for generations and generations. We know that whenever John records the instance whenever Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well that one of the particular shocking things about Jesus' discourse with that woman is that she was a Samaritan. And John parenthetically states, Jews did not have anything to do with Samaritans. And so as Jesus is passing through the land, his disciples go before him to make preparations for him to pass through the land. Maybe some type of accommodation or something like that. But anyway, they go into the land... And then the Bible says in verse 54, And when his disciples, James and John, who saw this, they said, Lord, do we want to, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he returned and, rebu or he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, and they went to another village." So as they're passing through or the messengers go in to, to make accommodations for the passage of Jesus through Samaria, they were met with opposition. And the Samaritans were saying, no, 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 if you're going to Jerusalem, you're not passing through here. And whenever we see James and John, we know that they're noted as the sons of thunder. They had a certain zeal and fervor that was part of their disposition and part of their spirit. And so whenever they were confronted with opposition to Jesus, they did what zealous, fervent people did. And that was become emboldened. And so they said to the Lord, Lord, you want us to just call fire from heaven down on them and just burn them up? That's what Elijah did. Remember back in 2 Kings chapter 1 whenever Elijah was in the land of Samaria and Ahaziah, the king who had, fell, had fallen and he was bedridden from his injury and he didn't know whether he was going to live or not. And so he sent out messengers to go to, these, to, a, to, a, to the counselors and messengers of a pagan god to find out whether he was going to live or not. 
Well, Elijah met those messengers along the way and he said to them, isn't there a God in Israel you could go talk to about this? And he said, you go back and you tell the king he's not getting up from that bed alive. And so they go back and they tell the king, we, we met this man and he was dressed a certain way and then the king says, oh, that's, that's Elijah. What did he tell you? Well, he said, you're not getting up from this bed. And the king did what most kings did. If you didn't like the message, you go after the messenger. And so he sends a captain of 50 men with his 50 men to go out and to call Elijah and to bring Elijah in. And so they go out and they see Elijah up on a mountain and they cry out to him, Man of God, come down from here. And he looked down at them and he says, Well, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume all of you. And you know what it did? Burn them to a crisp. And so word gets back to the king. And the king, you know what he does? He does the same thing again. He gets a group of men, a captain of 50, 50 men sends him out. They see Elijah up there. And Elijah says, they said, man of God, come down. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, may fire from heaven come down and consume you. And you know what? It did. And so James and John, they're thinking, well, when Elijah was in a situation like this, the way he took care of it was he just called down fire from heaven and that was the end of the problem. So why don't we just call down fire from heaven and blaze a trail through Samaria and show them who's the boss? And Jesus says, you don't know what type of, or what manner of spirit you are. He turned and rebuked them. He rebuked their zeal. He rebuked their fervor. Why? Because their zeal and their fervor were misguided. The word rebuke that he uses here means to censor. To censor means to express severe disapproval of what someone has said. Sometimes you'll hear about politicians being censored and that's an expression by the governing body that they're a part of that we severely disapprove of what this person has said. And that's what Jesus did. He severely disapproved of what they said. Let's just call down fire from heaven and consume them. And so Jesus expressed that disapproval. And the text tells us, he said, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy lives, but to save them. Now you might be looking at a different translation of the Bible and those verses might be missing because there's some manuscript question as to whether they should be included in the text or not. And those are some of the versions, I think, where, the, uh, where that statement is left out. And the idea is that it was put in later by scribes to, to give a further explanation of the rebuke that Jesus gave to them. And so I, I just want to be up front. There's some manuscript question about that. But whenever we look at the rebuke, we see within it a very scriptural rebuke that we can look to from other scriptures. Because Jesus says, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And that's what John tells us in John chapter 3. That Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And James and John didn't understand that. They just knew that these people were against God, and we've got the power to do something about it, so let's in the spirit of Elijah call down fire from heaven upon them. Well, what's the lesson for us today from that? Sometimes in our zeal for a cause, even a righteous cause, James and John, their cause was a righteous cause. It was the cause of Jesus Christ. 
We forget what manner of spirit we're to portray to the world and what our purpose in this world really is. What our purpose in this world really is. You see, we're living in a time when our politics and cultural issues are inflaming emotions. And as Christians, we must be careful to maintain the manner of spirit that is consistent with our purpose and calling. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. A lot of times in our zeal and our fervor for causes that we truly believe in, we take upon ourselves a disposition or a manner of spirit which really is not distinct from anyone else in the world. Though our message may be different, our attitude and our spirit is not. And therefore we hinder our message because of our attitude and spirit. And so James and John were rebuked by Jesus. And I wonder if maybe the same rebuke might be appropriate for some of us today. As we look at the way that we express ourselves in the climate that we live in today, and though we hold true to the cause and we have a zeal and we have a fervor for the cause, we allow a spirit and a disposition to come over us that works counter to the purpose that we're called to serve. Think about that for just a moment. Think of how you respond to events of today. Think about how you respond or I respond to the political climate and the political leaders of this day. And though we may be convicted in our message, is the spirit and the attitude that we portray a spirit and an attitude that's going to fulfill the ultimate purpose that we've been called for? To save the souls of people. We don't want to alienate people with our disposition and our spirit by fighting these battles so that we ultimately lose the war. And we want to look at some teaching this morning that Paul gives that describes for us the type of spirit, the type of disposition that we should have in order to accomplish the purpose that we're called for. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, Paul says, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth. The first thing that Paul tells Timothy is, to avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. There are some disputes that are not legitimate. They're not a pursuit of the truth. They are only there to promote confusion and strife and advance agendas. And as Christians, we need to be very judicious about the battles that we involve ourselves in today. Because some of those battles can be, like we say, losing battles. We may win the argument, but we've really lost the fight in fulfilling the purpose that we're called for. Here Paul says to avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife. In order to be an effective minister, 
of the gospel, in order to be an effective disciple of Jesus Christ, as Paul taught Timothy, we don't entangle ourselves in the affairs of this world. Because when we entangle ourselves in the affairs of this world, it takes away from our ability to fulfill the ultimate purpose. So as Christians, we need to be very careful about the battles and the arguments that we involve ourselves into. Just because you think, and I think I've got something to say about something, doesn't mean that I have to say it. I have to have a filter on myself where everything that I say, every battle I engage in, I need to ask the question, how is this going to help me to fulfill the ultimate purpose for which God has called me? And that's to save souls. And again, we look at a lot of things in our country and in our land and a lot of issues today that are very valuable, that are very personable to us. But we have to gauge our involvement based upon not what's valuable and personal to us, but what's valuable and personal to Jesus Christ. And let that set the arguments and, uh, that we involve ourselves in. Paul says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Well, doesn't the Bible tell us we're supposed to fight the good fight? Yeah, but there's a certain way to fight that fight. And one of the ways that we fight that fight is by having a disposition that's inviting to people that enables us to minister to them the true message of peace. And so we're not supposed to war or fight, but we're to be gentle. This is a word that we're going to see a lot this morning, the word gentle and meekness. And the word gentle here means affable. It means friendly, good-natured, easy to talk to. Are you the type of person, am I the type of person that demonstrates a spirit where people feel like that we're approachable and they can talk to us? Or are we the type of person that anytime somebody speaks something that we disagree with, we hold up our fist to heaven and call down fire upon them? In every situation that I'm in, in every issue that I'm discussing, in every dispute that I might be involved in, I have to make sure that I don't compromise my spirit in order to fortify my message. Your message is not any more correct and any more believable just because you turn up the volume on it. Your message is not any more correct and it's not any more believable whenever you put all of those things in it that take away from manifesting the spirit that we should have. He says we're to be apt to teach. To be apt to teach means to be instructive. To be able to teach people. You know, I can tell people a lot of things and not teach them a thing. You can tell people a lot of things and not teach them a thing. I can voice my opinion and I can say, oh, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. That is so ridiculous. I can't believe you think this and I can't believe... Have I taught them anything? No. I haven't taught them anything. How about offering some spiritual, biblical, sound, logical reasoning as the basis for what I'm saying? And cut out all of the sarcasm and cut out all of the put-downs and cut out all of the lampooning 
And just speak the truth in love. Just speak the truth in love. Because again, even though our message is correct, we compromise that message and we take ourselves, we put ourselves in a position where we're not going to accomplish the purpose for which you and I are called. To be patient. To, in, to be enduring of ill. You know what? It takes a lot of patience as a Christian to live in this world today, doesn't it? To see the things that are coming down the pike and listening to the things that people... It's just so outlandish and we just get so impatient hearing it. We just want to explode. We can't do that. We can't do that. We have to be gentle. We have to be apt to teach. We have to be humble. And the word humble there means gentle. Well, why do we have to be all of that? Well, we want to correct people. And the word correct means to train up a child. That word comes from the Greek word that literally means to teach and to train a child. Whenever you teach and train a child, you want to be affable. You want to be good-natured. You want that child to be, to be drawn to you because of your disposition and your attitude. What do we do with parents that tell their kids that they're stupid all the time? We look at that, you're not going to teach that kid anything. You're doing harm to that kid. Well, it's the same way. Whenever we try to teach people that are in darkness, we want to have the type of attitude that with gentleness we teach them because what's important? What is really important at the end of the day? That my political position is the one that wins? that my view on this issue is the one that wins? What's really important at the end of the day? Paul says, Timothy, you do all of this so that people are going to know the truth. That's it, the truth. So when we engage people in our culture today about any issue or any matter that might come up, when we engage them, our ultimate goal should not be just to simply win an argument on an issue or advance a political agenda, but to manifest a spirit that ultimately we can engage these people and teach them the truth about Jesus Christ. And we would be surprised how much all of this other foolishness would be taken care of if people would just turn to Jesus. And that's our end. And there's, again, a lot of things that we can look to that are precious to our country and, and values and principles that we hold dear. But we've got to understand that in advance of those, in defense of those, if we compromise our ability to teach people the truth, I can convince people about the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, this Amendment, that Amendment, but if I haven't convinced them about Jesus, what have I done? What have I done? They're going to go to hell saying what they want, carrying a gun. We've got to understand what our true purpose is. 
1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made to all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, our, God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul, you exhort people to pray, or first of all, to pray and give thanks and make intercessions and supplications for all men. You know who's included in all men? All men. Those that I agree with and those I don't agree with. They're included in all men. Pray for them. And he goes on specifically to say, you pray for the kings and all who are in authority. Two early Christian writers, Tertullian and uh, Origen. Tertullian wrote, we pray for all of the emperors that God may grant them long life, a secure government, a prosperous family, vigorous troops, a faithful senate, an obedient people that the whole world may be in peace and that God may grant both to Caesar and to every man the accomplishments of their just desires. You ever prayed that for one of our presidents? I know that's not inspired scripture, but I think it manifests the type of spirit and prayer that we're to have for those. Were the Caesars angels? No. Were the Caesars, you know, real religious leaders that we just agree, that they agreed with right down the line? No. But he prayed for them. Origen, in the 2nd and 3rd century, we pray for kings and rulers that with their royal authority they may be found possessing a wise and prudent mind. You know, these aren't prayers of, of condemnation, but these are prayers for the kings and for all of those in authority. Well, why do we pray for them? Well, Paul says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. That, in order that. In other words, so the product or the reason that we pray is for this purpose. We pray for them and we pray for their blessing, but we also pray for them for our own blessing. Because there's something that we get out of it. By exercising ourselves in prayer for rulers, we are in a spirit to be quiet and peaceable. The word quiet means to be tranquil with an idea of stillness. To be peaceable means to keep one seat and to be undisturbed. To keep one seat and to be undisturbed. we got a lot of Christians that are disturbed today. A lot of Christians that aren't keeping their seat. But we're to pray for our rulers and in that prayer we're, it's to possess within us a quiet and a peaceable spirit with all godliness. The word godliness there means a piety and that's a regard for the person and the holiness of God that has an effect on my conduct and my actions with reverence, with respectfulness. You know, I don't know about you but whenever I look at if I don't know someone and you know, trying to figure something out about them, 
try to figure out what type of person they are, what type of spirit they are, you know, for lack of a better phrase, just to say, you know, how serious are they about living the Christian life? I like to listen to their political discussions. What type of spirit do they manifest there? Because that tells you a lot about the seriousness of a person's walk with the Lord. That they can live in a world where there is so much unrest and they can live in a world where there's so much going on that they disagree with, but they're still able to maintain a quiet and peaceable spirit with all godliness and reverence. Understanding that it's their citizenship in the kingdom of God that, value, that they value and that shapes their life rather than their citizenship in a country. And think about this for just a moment. If I'm praying for these kings in authority, how ridiculous is it for me to pray for their good on one hand and then come over here and talk bad about them? Well, I just got through praying for them over there, so, you know, let's be smart people here. <laughs> if I pray for their blessing over here, why do I want to come over here and curse them and talk bad about them? I don't. Now everything that I can think of and everything that I might say might be true. But it might be wrong also. Well, wait a minute. How can something be true and wrong at the same time? Well, what you say can be true, but the attitude and spirit that you say it with can be wrong. And notice the next statement. You know, anytime you see a statement like this, it just expressly says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. That word good there literally means, I didn't put the definition up, but it means beautiful. In other words, God says, it's a beautiful thing. When I see my people living in the world where there's so much going on that's wrong and, and, and so many things that could be spoken out against, not that we don't speak out, but we speak out with a certain spirit that they can pray for those in authority because God takes authority seriously. Even bad authority. The submission to authority is not grounded in whether I like the person or not. The submission to authority is grounded in the basic principle of this, that God said to do it. You know, sometimes we, 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 on a lot of things, we'll just say, well, because God said to do it. But then for some reason, when it comes to submitting to political people and rulers that we don't agree with, that's not a good enough answer. <laughs> it's just as good as any other answer. Why do we use bread and fruit? Because God said to well, why do you submit to a ruler like that? Because God said to. And when I do that, God looks at that and he thinks, that is so beautiful. It's so beautiful when Tertullian and Origen were praying for the Caesars. It was beautiful to God. Because it showed a type of spirit and disposition and trust in the fact that God is in control and all is well. And I can pray for these people. I can pray for them. Well, why do we want to do this? Again, because God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Those people that we disagree with, God desires that they be saved too. That person that I'm talking to and I'm having that disagreement with and that person that's getting all inflamed and boisterous with me, God wants that person to be saved. So I want to act towards them in a way 
that will tend to their salvation. 1 Peter 3, 15-16, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart always. Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason, the hope that's in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Harkens back to Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 13. The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. In all of my answers to anyone, in all of my actions to anyone, the one thing that I want people to know is I fear God. I fear God. And I want you to see that in my heart through the way that I answer you. And that's why Paul, or rather Peter is saying here that those who ask a defense of you, you do it with a certain type of spirit. And that type of spirit is a spirit of piety and reverence. And understanding that God is not only judging my words, He is judging my spirit. You see, a lot of times when people ask us a question, we, we, we want to be sure we get the answer right and we want to get the words right. It's just as important that we get the Spirit right. It's just as important that we get the Spirit right. Because it's the Spirit that's going to make our words receptive. You know, if you can't get people to listen to you, it doesn't matter what you say, does it? If people don't want to listen to you. And that's one of the things that I notice about Jesus. People came to Jesus. People came to Jesus. Why did people come to Jesus? Well, Jesus invited them. How did He invite them? Well, He invited them with their disposition. In Matthew 11, Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. In other words, when you come to me, this is the type of disposition that you're going to get. And so people came to him. The word meekness there means to be mild. And again, the word fear means to be afraid. And not just afraid that you're going to get the answer wrong, but also afraid that you get the spirit wrong. God's judging my words. He's judging my spirit. <clears throat> so any exchange with those who question or challenge us, be careful to answer in a manner becoming of a saint. You know, again, we see a lot of people that say the right things, but they say the right things the wrong way. And rather than people being drawn to them and learning from them, people are repulsed by their attitude. And whenever we speak, whenever anyone speaks, people are going to listen and they're going to learn, not necessarily on the basis of the content of your words, but on the expression of your spirit. Psychology today says in, in making a first impression, our, the, the first seven seconds, there's always these types of studies, I found this interesting, the first seven seconds that you're involved with a person, they're forming their first impression of you. And that first impression is not, well, okay, I'm going to sit here and wait and hear what they say, but the majority of it is I want to hear how they say it. I want to see their attitude. I want to see their disposition. Because I don't know about you, I've heard people that preach the truth. I didn't want to sit and listen to them. I didn't want to sit and listen to them. 
even though what they taught was, was, was true, but just, just to sit there and, and, and because of the type of spirit and demeanor that they had. Now, that's not saying that whenever we preach the truth, we're just all supposed to make everybody feel, feel, you know, feel good and you know, everybody just love us and embrace us, because, but we have to be discerning. And especially when we're engaging in the world. How can we shine our light in the world? A great way to shine our light in the world right now in the time that we live in is to have a meek, gentle, quiet spirit amongst all of the hullabaloo that's going on around us. When everybody else is standing up and shouting, we keep our seat. We don't keep silent, but we keep our seat. And people will notice that. And people will notice that. And it gives power and it gives effectiveness to our words. And again, as we said, I got ahead of myself. Jesus says, to come unto me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your soul. You see, here's the deal. A lot of times in our culture today, we engage people like this. <laughs> You know, if you get on social media and you're talking to somebody that you don't know that's picking an argument with you, you know, that, that's probably who's on the other end of the computer. And here's the truth. I'm not going to convince that guy of anything. That guy's a scoffer. He's a scorner. He's not looking for truth. In fact, he's going to speak evil against anything that's good. And he wants to troll me and he wants to troll you and he wants to draw us in and he wants to get us to be just like him. And we can talk to that person and we can stick our tongue out at them and we can engage them and, and, and all of the while what we're doing is minimizing our ability to fulfill our true purpose and calling and that's to bring people to the truth. People like that, the Bible says, leave them alone. Leave them alone. Don't think that just because somebody engages you with something that you've got to jump right in. You know, it... What's, what type of person is this? Because here's the deal. All the while that we might be yelling back at a person like that, there's a person like this watching. There's a person like this watching. And if that person right there sees us with the same attitude and disposition as that person, regardless of what we say, is that person going to be inclined to come to us to want to know truth? You see, and that's the thing about engaging people or being confronted with people like that. I'm not going to convince that person. Oops. I might can have some influence with this person. That's the person that I want to influence. So if I am engaged with a person like that, I want to show a type of spirit and disposition that's going to cause this person to become interested in what I've got to say. He's not going to be interested in what I've got to say. He just wants to argue. Like the majority of the people in the world today. You know, you know, that we just want to argue. But this person right here may be looking for someone. I want to be that someone. I want to be that someone. You need to be that someone. <clears throat> Let's say that I put you in a room of people, a room with a group of people like this, and you had a problem. Who would you want to talk to? Who would you want to talk to? 
Well, I'm sure that probably all of us, our attention is drawn to that man right there. Why is that? Well, because that is the guy that looks reasonable. That is the guy that looks logical. That is the guy that looks like he has a spirit and a disposition that I could sit down and talk with him. What about all of these others right here? And I think that one right there is a preacher. If you're, <laughs> and my my question is today: Whenever people see us, when they see us in the community talking, discussing things at work, when they get on our social media pages and they see our social media pages, are they seeing this? Or are they seeing that? When they look at our discourse in the community, the way that we discuss and the way that we talk in our social media page, is the first thing that they know about us is our, our party affiliation? Is the first thing that they know about us what amendments we stand for? Or is the first thing they know about us is this is a Christian? This is a Christian. And then they can look at our message. This is a Christian. This guy is different. This lady is different. You don't see the memes and the lampooning of authority, but you see someone with a quiet, rational, peaceable spirit that's able to coherently express truth in a way that has a meaningful impact. They're on here to instruct and teach. They're not on here just to make noise with everybody else. And so the challenge that I would put before you and the challenge that I put to myself, and it's hard. It's hard. My wife has to dial me back sometimes. <laughs> you know, she, and, and because, I mean, it is. I mean, you just see things that you're just, can it get any worse? When really, instead of just looking at it and saying, oh, I've got to say something, could it get any worse? Just People need Jesus. People need Jesus. And what's the best way for me to get that message across? And the best way for me to get that message across, the best way for you to get that message across, is that in our interactions with our culture and the climate that we're in today, that we show a peaceable, quiet, meek spirit. And you might look, oh, that's just being weak. Well, Jesus wasn't weak. It takes a strong person to stand with character, with integrity, with a spiritual disposition when everything else around, the, around you is falling apart. That is strength. When everybody else is getting mad, when everybody else is getting loud, it takes strength to keep your spirit and to speak in a way that promotes truth. Let's be strong in that way. Let's convince people that way. And let's show to people the truth of Jesus Christ. Because it's not in legislation. It's not in politicians. It's not in anything else. Everything that we desire for ourselves, for our cities, for our country, it's found in Jesus. And so everything that I do and you do should be to that end to promote that. I appreciate your attention this morning. And I hope that what we've said has been helpful to you and that you will take to heart the words, not because they're my words, but that because they're the words of the Lord.
The Lord wants us to be zealous. The Lord wants us to be fervent. The Lord wants us to, you know, to be diligent. But let's understand those words in the context of the description that the Bible gives of us, gives to us. Having that quiet, that gentle, that peaceable spirit, speaking rationally, speaking in a way that influences people to Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you desire to be one, the congregation here gives you an opportunity to make that wish known and to tend to that wish. Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died on the cross, paying the atoning debt for your sin. He was not a sinner, but he died as a sinner so that you as a sinner can be like Jesus, that you can be righteous and holy before God. And through obedience to the gospel, being buried with him in baptism, and the likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection, rise to walk in newness of life. Or if you are here today, and you are a Christian, and maybe something that we've talked about has touched your heart, that the word has convicted you in some way, that you feel a desire to uh, solicit the prayers and the support of this congregation to help you further in your walk with the Lord. I know that the elders would be glad to help you in that. And so we ask one or more to come as we stand and sing.